If you have your Bibles, please open them to John chapter 16. We'll be looking at verses 16 through 22 as we slowly make our way towards the end of this farewell discourse. The text is also printed for you in the bulletin. John chapter 16, starting in verse 16. A little while and you will see me no longer. Again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. You may be seated. And as you do, let us together go to the Lord and ask his blessing upon his word. Father God, we do thank you. That even though in this life we may be filled with sorrows and grief. That we have the promise of not only an everlasting joy in your presence, but we have the promise that you are using even our sorrows and our grief to produce joy within us. May you reaffirm that promise to us as we hear these words of Christ. Apply them to us by your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In the third stanza of the hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go, a hymn I did debate whether or not we should use this morning, George Matheson, the author, wrote... O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. How do we know that joy seekest through pain? Where do we find the promise that the rainbow comes through the rain? I'd argue right here in the text before us in John chapter 16, as Jesus slowly brings his farewell discourse to a close. It might not be as explicit, but it's still no less clear, especially when Jesus says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now, Jesus has already spent a great deal of time and words preparing his disciples for what lies ahead of them, particularly after his resurrection, and his ascension. He's promised the Spirit is going to come to them and dwell within them. He has promised that the world is going to hate them. But he's also promised that the witness to Christ will flow through them. But now, in these last few verses of this discourse, Jesus begins to prepare his disciples for what lies most ahead of them in their most immediate future. His crucifixion and resurrection. The former is going to bring them in intense grief and suffering. Unlike anything they had ever witnessed before. And the latter, the resurrection, will bring them a greater gladness and delight. The disciples may not know it now. 
They might not understand it now, and I'd argue they don't understand it. They can't even fathom it at this moment. But Jesus, in these few words here in John chapter 16, is guaranteeing them joy will seek them through pain. And we find here that in the cross of Christ, we have the promise of our joy being produced through sorrow. As we have the promise of our joy being produced through sorrow. The outline for the sermon follows the movement of this short back and forth between Jesus and his disciples. There's, there's a break from just Jesus talking, and now the disciples start to talk. But you'll see the points in the bulletin. We'll look at the current confusion, the coming sorrow, and then finally the certain joy. And everything in this section flows out of verse 16. Look at verse 16 with me. And a little while you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. The disciples repeat this verbatim in verse 17. And they re-emphasize that phrase little while in verse 18. And then Jesus repeats it one more time in verse 19. It is this phrase that draws out the disciples' confusion, that draws out and points forward to their sorrow, and also cements their joy. So we open where this section opens with, the current confusion of the disciples. Have you ever been in an experience or been in an environment where maybe you've listened to someone talk or give you information only to leave you walking away just as confused as when you walked in. I remember my first class in college was an 8 a.m. philosophy class. Why I picked philosophy at 8 a.m., I still don't know. But the professor himself was a very intense Lutheran minister who happened to love philosophy. He got easily excited and easily angered at the same time just in our introduction class. As he mentioned the things we, will, we were going to study, things that I had not studied before. And then he started dropping names like Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, Locke, Kant, and so on. I walked away from that first class feeling like someone had a box, 5,000 piece jigsaw puzzle, opened it, and just dumped the pieces in my lap. I desperately sought out any classmates, particularly upperclassmen, who would either A, give me their notes or come alongside me and help a 18-year-old freshman at an 8 a.m. philosophy class have any sense of what is going on. The disciples are me at this moment, but far worse. They're lost, they're confused. This little phrase that Jesus has given them in verse 16 has their heads spinning. They're starting to whisper now to each other. They're throwing their hands up like, I don't know what he just said, did you catch that? Maybe some of them are kind of leaning back at the table, making eyes with one another like, I had no clue. They're scratching their heads. Insert whatever your favorite confused meme is at this point for our younger folks. And what's the, what's the reason for their confusion? What is causing their heads to spin? It is that short phrase Jesus uses, a little while. How long is a little while? How can it be that in this little while, Jesus is going to be gone from them, and yet also then, in a little while, back with them? They understand he's going to the Father, but they still have no sense of how he's going to get there. And in their defense, the disciples' defense, that is, scholars are also confused about what Jesus means by a little while. What is the precise timing? 
Is it the crucifixion and the resurrection? Is it the crucifixion and Pentecost? Is it crucifixion and the second coming? These are all options that get floated out there. Personally, I I find the, the simplest reading to be the best. And many would agree that Jesus here, in a little while you'll see me, a little while you won't, is his death and his resurrection. This understanding fits the context better. It explains the deep, intense sorrow that the disciples are about to face as well as the profound joy that they will know when they see Jesus returning to them in the flesh. And it also works best with the analogy, the illustration Jesus uses himself of a woman giving birth. And it helps, frankly, just explain the disciples' confusion. Because remember, at this stage, they still have no category for Jesus, their teacher, who they believe to be the Messiah, leaving them especially leaving them through death. It doesn't matter how many times Jesus told them it was coming, it's still not on their radar. According to their understanding, if Jesus is going to leave and return, he's going to return with the kingdom in full. And so him using this phrase, a little while I'm gone, a little while I'm back, and then throwing in what he said earlier about going to the Father, all their understanding is shaken. They feel like they're in the dark, grasping at straws. And they do what we often do when we're confused. We talk to everybody else. But the person who has the answers. In this case, Jesus, who's still either sitting with them at the table or on the road with them on the way to the garden. Maybe they feel ashamed of their ignorance. Maybe they think they should know better or know what Jesus is talking about. Maybe they're too afraid of revealing their ignorance once again, asking a question that Jesus gives them a simple, gentle, yet still straightforward answer. Or maybe it's simply their confusion is mixed with their sorrow and they just don't have the words to speak. We don't know. But what we do know is that they're confused. They are in a state of full confusion at this moment. And this state of confusion should comfort us. There is much in life of the follower of Jesus Christ that confuses us, sometimes deeply so. There are days, there are hours, there are seasons where we feel puzzled. Very rarely do we ever feel like we know what is going on or what God is doing. And no, our confusion is not the same as the disciples because we have the spirit within us. We've fleshed out what that means, the understanding that he brings. We have the full revelation of God in Christ. We have the promise of the cross and the empty tomb, which the disciples had none of. But we still find ourselves confused and puzzled. Puzzled by the things that we face. Sometimes puzzled by the things we're reading of in scripture, the things we're hearing as we partake of the steady diet of, the, of worship corporately. And sometimes we're confused and puzzled just as we witness the things in us, around us, that leaves us scratching our heads. There are seasons when even the most veteran Christians among us will feel like they're in over their heads, punching above their weight class. And we can be comforted knowing that God uses these seasons to deepen our dependence upon him. He's not thrown off by our confusion. 
No, he doesn't promise he's going to always bring us clarity in the moment. But we do have what these disciples did not have. The Spirit's presence within us, working us, guiding us. Helping us to understand better what God is doing and to rely on him all the more. So when we are kept up at night with our confused minds, or the puzzling circumstances are discouraging us, we have a place to go. We can ask our God for help. Whether we get the answers or not, he does promise to encourage, to strengthen us according to his good purposes. So be comforted when you're confused and go to the throne of grace. Ask God for clarity and trust in what he is doing, even if it doesn't make sense. But for these disciples, though, we move from their current confusion to the harsh reality that things are going to get worse for them. Jesus promises coming sorrow. And notice how Jesus, he knows their questions. He knows what, what, what's at the forefront of their mind is, what do you mean by a little while? And he doesn't answer the question. Instead, he gives them what they need to hear. They think they need a detailed blueprint of what little while means. And while that may have been helpful, it may have been important information that would have, they would have drawn back on as they faced the hours ahead of them, Jesus gives them what they really need to hear. Look at verse 20. Truly, truly, which is Jesus' way of saying, count on this or be certain of this. I say to you, you will weep and lament. Later on, he says, you will be sorrowful. Jesus gets to the point, grief is coming for these disciples. And I personally find it incredible that Jesus, when he talks about this grief and sorrow, he doesn't talk about his grief and sorrow. He doesn't use their confusion to explain the valley of the shadow of death that he's about to go through. He doesn't say, you think you're going to have it bad, well wait till you hear what I'm going to go through. No, in his love for them as their teacher and their shepherd, he prepares them for what they're going to face. The painful hours awaiting them. The sorrow. And the first thing we find out, it is going to be a deep pain and grief. Jesus uses words that are very Old Testament words, often associated in places like the Psalms or the prophets. He says, weep, lament, grieve. This kind of grief is an audible kind of grief. It's not the fighting back the tears or, or swallowing the lump that's building in the throat. It's not putting up a good front so people don't see. It's a wailing type of grief. It's beyond the sleeves, open for all to see. It is heavy. It is the kind of grief we see saints like Hannah in 1 Samuel 1, David in 2 Samuel 13, Daniel in Daniel 9, the sons of Asaph in Psalm 88, as they experience barrenness, death, sin, and suffering. The disciples are going to know and taste this kind of pain and grief as they watch Jesus get arrested, tried, beaten, mocked, spit on, nailed to a tree, taken off the cross, and put into a tomb. 
it has the potential to destroy them. And Jesus uses the analogy of birth to help this, re- to help this grief sink in ahead of them. I've been present for the birth of all three of my children. And without getting into any details, no details, simply going to say the birth process is an experience filled with pain and sorrow. Doesn't come as a shock to anybody. Such pain is physical, it's emotional, it is real, it is deep. No woman after they've given birth looks back and says, that was it? That was easy. And no husband, at least no husband who wants to not get hit, is going to say, I don't understand what the big deal was. That didn't seem so bad. No, childbirth is, is an experience filled with pain and sorrow and anguish. The end result, as wonderful it is, doesn't somehow undo or cancel all the pain that the, the woman just went through. It is still experienced. It is still felt. And Jesus is saying, that experience is waiting for you, my disciples. And I want you to be ready. So it doesn't completely undo you. So it doesn't shake you to your core. So it doesn't cause you, as we looked back a few weeks ago, to fall away. But unlike a birth, the disciples' grief is going to have another step to it. The world is going to celebrate their grief. Jesus adds, you're going to lament and weep, and the world's going to rejoice. I can't say that it's ever happened, but I've yet to experience or hear of a husband, nurse, or doctor celebrating the pain and anguish that a woman is going through in the middle of birth. No, all of them are taught to do things like coach, encourage, reassure, help the woman as she endures the pain and the anguish and the sorrow. And Jesus says for his disciples, don't expect the world to do that. As you're weeping and wailing and lamenting, don't expect them to give you a greeting card. Don't expect them to come alongside you and hold your hand to give you reassuring words. You're not going to get sympathy from them. They're going to celebrate. If you've been watching any of the basketball unfold over the past couple days, we've seen this juxtaposed one side grieving, one side celebrating over and over again over the course of these three and a half days. As one team is crying over their loss, the other team is passing hugs around, celebrating. As one locker room sits and stares in silence, the other one is loud and rambunctious with water being sprayed on coaches, on players, and everyone who enters. As one section of mom and dads have have tears of joy streaming down their faces, the other section of mom and dads is staring off into the unknown with tears of sorrow. As one band is playing the the best and the most upbeat song, the other one is almost like playing a dirge, a lament. And this is how Jesus is, is picturing what the world is going to do even as he hangs on the cross. The same event that is going to trigger the sorrow of the disciples is going to trigger the celebration and joy of the world. The world's going to think that it is one. It's going to think the battle is over. It's going to laugh at the disciples and anyone else who is foolish enough to place their hope in this man, Jesus Christ, hanging on a cross. 
And this is only going to deepen the pain and the sorrow that the disciples feel. It's going to make the sting feel that much stronger. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't come as a surprise to us that most of you have, many of you are experiencing this kind of sorrow, pain, and anguish as you follow Jesus Christ. And for some of you, the world is piling on top of it. It's rejoicing over your sorrow. And we need to be reminded that there will be dark nights of the soul. That phrase coined by Spurgeon, a man himself who knew many dark nights of the soul. There will be loss. We will experience pain, whether it is physical, emotional, or spiritual. On the one hand, it's not going to be like the disciples' sorrow. But it is still painful. It is still difficult. And just as we are reminded when it comes to our confusion, we're reminded again, we have somewhere to go with our sorrow. Even when it is at its deepest and most painful. The throne of grace. And we can go to the Psalms, which gives voice to sometimes those sorrows that we have that we struggle to put words to. The Psalms provide a great place for us to to bring our grief and to express our grief when it is hardest. And because of what Jesus has suffered and endured on the cross, we have the promise that our cries will be heard. Because he's living, ever living, to intercede for us. We have the promise that his spirit dwelling within us is going to bring us comfort. And that we have a Savior who knows and sympathizes with us because he did experience that type of sorrow. We need not try to dismiss it or to hide it. We can endure it even when it is hardest. Because as we're going to see right here in a moment, that we have the certain promise that God is working something through it. Which then brings us to our final point, certain joy. Sorrow will not be the final word for the disciples. There is going to be gladness. There is going to be rejoicing. And the birth analogy once again helps Jesus or helps to make Jesus' point. Without the pain, without the anguish, without the grief, there would be no baby. There would be no joy of holding that adorable little human being in your arms. No joy of listening to those adorable and delightful sounds that a newborn baby makes. No, not the screams, the cooing, and the the, the eyeing, all all those lovely sounds that, for those of you who had a baby, know. It is precisely because of that sorrow that the resulting joy is so profound, so hard to put into words, so worth it all in the end. Because it is through that very sorrow, through that very pain, that the joy is produced. Literally, that the joy is born. Why else would women sign up to do it again, if not for the joy that comes through it? And Jesus promises his disciples that their joy would be produced through the sorrow he has just walked them through. 
He says, your sorrow will be turned into joy. We might be tempted to take Jesus' later words where he said she no longer remembers and kind of think of it as Jesus is saying there's just this shift. We go from a place of sorrow to a place of joy. But really what he is emphasizing is how sorrow yields, bears the fruit of joy. D.A. Carson writes it this way. The disciples' sorrow is not simply displaced by joy, but rather their sorrow turns into joy. The thing that generates their grief, namely the cross, ultimately prompts their joy. The disciples will experience that transformation, their sorrow being moved into joy because of the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is the picture of God bringing joy through sorrow. This comforting and foundational promise revealed at the cross is one of the many reasons that we can say things like the cross is wonderful. The cross is something that we cherish. Because we on this side of it can look and see the sorrow, see the grief, see the pain but also see the joy that has come through it. I'm not alone in this, but I'm convinced that Jesus, with this analogy of a birth experience, is alluding to Isaiah 66, which Carl read for us earlier. It's not just a helpful illustration. Jesus is using it as more than just an illustration. For in Isaiah 66, the prophet declares that God is going to use this decisive act of salvation, and it's going to unfold like childbirth. There's going to be pain, there's going to be sorrow, there's going to be grief. And on the other side of it, through it, there's going to be peace, there's going to be glory, there's going to be comfort, there's going to be the judgment of God's enemies and the delight and the joy of his people. And so Jesus, using veiled language, that the disciples don't understand now, but they surely would understand once the Spirit is poured out on them. He's telling them what's about to transpire in the hours ahead. He's saying that decisive act proclaimed in Isaiah 66, I'm doing it. God's salvation is coming and it's going to be brought, wrought, born through the horrible pain and sorrow of my cross. And because of it, there'll be joy on the other side. But he still warns them. He says, make no mistake. There will be, you will experience incredible and intense grief. You are going to weep. You are going to taste profound loss and your hearts will be heavy. But how deeper and more abounding will the joy be that this sorrow will produce? How eternal, abiding, and unshakable will this joy be for the disciples when they see Jesus risen and standing in front of them and inviting them to touch him, to wrap their arms around him, to rejoice in him. Peter would light or call it an inexpressible joy filled with glory in the opening words of his letter. 
And next week, we'll touch on maybe some more of the specifics of that joy as we wrap up this farewell discourse. And it's mainly in a unique relationship that disciples now have with the Father and the promise of victory. But for this morning, I want to add the the reality of, of this joy being produced through sorrow. Yes, first and foremost, it's a picture of how God has accomplished our salvation on the cross. But it's also what one commentator describes as the paradigm of life as a disciple through Jesus Christ. Or as that hymn I quoted at the beginning, that joy seekest me through pain. Our God is in the business of using the sorrows of his people to produce their joy. This is what Jesus experienced. The the opening text in in your bulletin at the top, Hebrews chapter 12, it's listed for you there. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. We also see it in the lives of these disciples who experience this great sorrow and the joy of Jesus' resurrection. And if we ask the Spirit to open our eyes, to work in our hearts, we stand to see it in our own lives today. And let it also encourage us as we pray for those we know who are suffering, that God would work that same work by his spirit, for them to have joy produced through it. No, it doesn't mean the pain will get minimized or that suddenly it won't seem so bad. Neither does it mean we'll have the guarantee that the pain will get removed. But it does mean we can ask God to produce joy in us through the very suffering we are facing. And we have the promise that he will do that the way our God works. He is producing joy in you now if you're suffering through sickness, whether it's acute or not. He is producing joy through the sorrows of parenting, whether your child is in your home, getting ready to leave your home or out of your home. He is producing joy in you as you work through the pain and suffering of a struggling marriage or maybe a desire to be married. He is producing joy even in the midst of your depression and your anxiety. Our God is promising you to take what is your most painful and intense sorrow and to work joy through it. A lasting joy, a fruitful joy. And this applies to us as a church as well. Our God has been and will continue to produce joy through whatever sorrow it is we face together as a collective body. Especially as as we hold fast to him and look to him in faith. We have a great savior and a friend, helping, keeping, loving, remaining with us to the end. This is all part of that joy he is producing. And then on top of it all, we have the promise of an internal joy in his presence. There will be a day when we will see him and he will see us in the flesh. We have the promise of a certain day when the people of God who have known much joy and sorrow will surround the throne transformed in glory and give glory to our triune God 
who has finished the work of bringing the greatest joy and eternal joy through our sorrow. And if we have any doubt now, as we press on, we need only look to the cross. And so let us encourage one another to continually look to the cross. For there lies all the proof that we need. There lies the promise that can and will sustain us to the very end. In the cross of Christ, we have the promise of our sorrow being produced, our joy being produced through sorrow. Let us pray. Father God, I pray for us, as I know many here are feeling various sorts of sorrow and grief. God, would you by your spirit apply this passage to all of us, but particularly to these dear brothers and sisters, that you are promising to work joy even through sorrow. Thank you that you have worked our greatest joy through the sorrow of the death of your only son, and that his resurrection is our promise of our resurrection, of our joy that will be eternal. May you give us eyes to see. May you give us faith that rests all the more in you and in your work of producing joy even through our sorrow. Help us by your spirit. Help us by driving us all the more to your throne of grace to find mercy and help in our time of need. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.